Take your Bibles, please, and turn with us to, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter number 2. Deviating from Genesis just for Mother's Day because I looked at Genesis and I didn't find anything there for Mother's Day that I wanted to talk about. But we're going to do something a little different about Mother's and Mother's Day and things like that. Exodus chapter number 2. To find out in this particular time in history of the world, to find out that you were pregnant was a death sentence, not for you but for the child. Find out that you were pregnant was a sentence that the baby once born would be thrown into the Nile River. Nile River, which runs the longest of any river throughout the world. It is deep at one point. It is 19 meters deep. That's over 60 feet deep. It does not run rapidly like the Amazon it doesn't, or the Mississippi, yet it is a river that is deadly if you get thrown into it. It was a death sentence for your child to find out that you were pregnant. That's pretty devastating. Along came a lady, according to verse number 1 and verse number 2 of Exodus chapter 2, a man and a wife who got married and had a child. There's at least 10 years between verse 1 and verse 2 of that chapter. Their third child at least was born and they hid him for three months. Now, I got a few questions about hiding a baby for three months. It's not the hiding of the baby for three months that really gets me. Okay, I could maybe get into, I could maybe explain that. How do you hide being pregnant for nine months? I've never met a woman yet who thought she could hide being, in fact, all the women I've known who are pregnant thought just the opposite. How do I hide this? I, look, and, and I, I'm not going to say anything more than that, okay? You know what I'm talking about. There, how do you hide that? For a full year, you hide the idea of this baby. Well, that's exactly what happened. And discovering that this baby was someone special. You don't get that from Exodus. You get that from Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. Discovering that this baby was someone special. They hid this baby. And then they took the baby after three months and decided, okay, you know, after three months, the babies, babies start to cry a little bit and we can't hide this baby any longer. So they got a basket, weaved it themselves. I don't really know. I do know that they had to do some doctoring to the basket because it tells us that. They had to pitch some tar around it. I have no idea what that means. Do you have any idea what that, you know what that means? They made it waterproof. They made it waterproof. Good, because I, you know, I'm clueless about most of these things. There's a light on in my vehicle. I have no idea what it means. So they, so I'm clueless about all that stuff. Uh, so they, they took this basket. They made it waterproof. Then put the baby in the basket. Then put the basket in the Nile River. Now, along the Nile River, there are places where there are all sorts of reeds growing up and marshy areas and stuff like that. It's not quite like the Mississippi, which by the time you pick up the Mississippi in the Twin Cities and it flows all the way to New Orleans, it is a roaring river the entire way. Nile's not like that. Nile has places around where there's backwater and there's reeds and marshy and swampy water and things like that. And, and so they found an area like that. They put the ba this baby in the waterproof basket amongst the reeds. Now, we probably understand that the mom left. Didn't want to get in trouble. Couldn't bear to see what would happen next. Left her daughter there. Eight, nine years old, something like that, to spy. Eight and nine-year-old girls were meant to be spies. <laughs> eight and nine-year-old girls. If you're an eight or nine-year-old girl, no offense, but you spy naturally. It's what you do. 
You spy and then you run and tell your friends. And then you tell someone else because this is news they just have to know, especially when the rest of us in the world are doing something we shouldn't be doing. She went to spy to find out what was going on. And once she discovered what was happening, she found that Pharaoh's daughter came out and, and saw the baby, the baby boy. I bet you want to know who that was, wouldn't you? After all, I've got a couple of advanced degrees. I should know these things, shouldn't I? I absolutely should know these things. I have no idea. Well, I have a small idea. So I'll share with you my small idea, but my theory is just a theory. I think this was the daughter of Tutmos I. Anybody who knows anything about Egyptian history knows that that would be... Her name always sounds like I should be slapped by my mother for saying it. Do you know what her name is? Pet? Sit. Sit. I'm only saying it once. She... <laughs> She, is, uh, she was most known for reigning along with one of the pharaohs right alongside and usurping the throne for a while. And then when she passed away, the III took over and wiped out all knowledge of her throughout the entire kingdom. She had erected statues and all sorts of things with her name on it. The best we can tell, her name was wiped out from every place that you could find on any kind of public display. That's my theory. It fits the timeline, fits all these things. But I have no idea. So there we are. There's Pharaoh's daughter, perhaps someone of a lot of importance in the kingdom and maybe not quite so important. And she says to the little girl who is spying, hey, take this, this boy and, and have him raised by a Hebrew. And then when he's a little bit older, bring him back to me. And we discover about verse number 7 and 8 that that, in fact, is exactly what happened. That he was taken, raised, and then brought back and raised in the palace along with the rest of Pharaoh's family. That wouldn't be too bad, would it? He'd be raised just like you were Pharaoh's kid. That'd be all right. Think of all of the advantages of being raised in the palace with Pharaoh. You could do anything you wanted. You're looking at me weird, like you don't think that... No, no, trust me. It would be cool to be a princess. You could get away with anything. You could get away with anything, maybe kind of like you do now. And except then, you could do a lot more and get away with it. Because dad would be the king of all of Egypt. And think of all the money that you would have at your disposal. Think of all the movies you could see as a princess. Think of, as a prince, all of the things that come your way. The best architecture in the world. All of these things that they taught all of the people in Egypt. You know, Egyptians figured out the movement of the sun and the, you, you know, about the pyramids and how they, yeah, you know all that stuff. That was figured out by the Egyptians. And, of course, they would want everyone who was raised in the palace to have all of that kind of knowledge. So the best engineers the world had to offer at that point in time, all of that knowledge was given to Moses. And there he was at, at being raised amongst all of these people. Let's for a moment look at the price tag that his mother had to pay in order to make that happen. Think of everything his mother had to do and how so much of it was unknown when she did it and how all of that then combines to make the price tag of commitment that this woman had to pay and the price tag of commitment that any and all of us would have to pay if we are going to be committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. And as you look at the price tag of commitment, you will discover that in the depths of the Nile, there was a whole lot of fear. 
This is a woman who had to dedicate her deepest fears to the Lord in order to be able to see what happened happen. She was not afraid of the king's edict according to Hebrews chapter 11 verse number 23. She saw that this was a special baby and being unafraid of the king and what he thought, she hid him anyway. Only by giving her fears back to God was she able to thrive. And only by giving her fears back to God was she able to see anything good and positive happen in her own child's life. Only by surrendering those fears and those insecurities, by giving God space enough to move, was it able really to happen. So many times we try to micromanage things in our own life and the lives of those around us, hoping that we somehow can stay in control of those things. Control is probably a lot more of, a, of an illusion than what you want to admit. The only way to be able to handle those things is to dedicate your deepest fears to the Lord, to recognize them, then to redeem them by saying, I'm going to give them up and give them back to the Lord, the things that make me the most afraid. I stood at the casket of an 81-year-old lady this past week, passed away. I'd been her pastor for a few years and family asked me if I would do her funeral the end of the funeral, as people were passing by, it came time for her daughter and attorney to pass by. Her daughter, uh, for everyone to hear, began to sob and tell her mom that she was afraid, not knowing exactly what the future would hold. Involved in a situation with a 15-year-old girl who's been in the hospital for a few weeks, suffering from... uh, Disorders that I'm certain she doesn't want me to say anything about. Can't imagine being that mom, being completely afraid of what would happen. So I talked even this past week with members of that family. As reminded ever so deeply what it takes to be a Christian in this world. To dedicate your deepest fears to the Lord, your deepest fears about your children, your deepest fears about their friends and their education your deepest fears about how they might grow up and what might happen to them, your deepest fears when they perhaps don't walk the way that you want them to. You know, kids don't always do what we want them to do. The price that must be paid, the price of commitment is to dedicate your deepest fears to the Lord. Businessmen, to see the blessing of God, you must dedicate your fears to the Lord so that He can take those and redeem those. Teachers, to dedicate, to overcome what you have in front of you, you must dedicate your fears to the Lord. Otherwise, they'll run over you. Right, Pastor Paul? Absolutely. And it will take just about a minute or two until it happens. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if you want to be committed to Jesus Christ, you must dedicate your fears and give up control of things to God and learn to walk in His way, regardless of what that means for you and your situation. Dedicating your deepest fears and your basic uncertainties to God. It's easy when you read a Bible story to not be able to fully put yourself in the story and to not understand what it, that we know the outcome because it's easy to read the story. You know, you can read verses 1 and 2 and think, oh, it happened just like that. It didn't happen just like that. As I told you, between verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 2, there's at least 10 years. 10 years is a long time. 10 years ago, I didn't have very much gray hair. 10 years ago, I was 30 pounds lighter. The last 10 years have not been good to me physically. 10 years went by in that amount of time. 
It's easy for us to neglect that and to not understand that they were uncertain when they did something. Yet imagine yourself walking out to Lake Michigan and putting your child in a basket that you yourself have waterproofed. Please don't. Please don't ask me to do that because I'm not sure I could waterproof it very well. And Ben, I don't think you swim very well. That would not be a good combination. Required a certain amount of risk about uncertainty and what would happen. Perhaps it seemed foolish because the water can get deep. There's no certainty that he would be found. And if he was found, who knows what would happen. It's a calculated risk, however, an act of trust before God, an act of saying that based on God's word and God's love and God's faithfulness, that she would take this risk and say, I'll do what I have to do. It's a dedication to act in spite of your uncertainties and your insecurities. Same past week, talked to a family. Is my kid normal? Nobody's kid is really normal. I mean, normal is... I'm not normal. Nobody's really normal. Look at somebody next to you and say with pride, I'm not normal. Okay, now you've got to look the other way and say, we're all normal. The fact is that normal, when it's your first time around as a parent, you have no idea what normal is. Are they supposed to put that in their mouth? Are they supposed to do that? Is that how she's supposed to look at him? Yeah, I guess, in spite of it all. Yeah, that is supposed to be how it goes. The price that you pay here is that of comfort. My grandparents raised four kids. Took them to church all the time. They were in church when the doors were open. Actually, they opened the church a bunch of times also. All four of them were raised in the youth group. All four of them went to youth rallies. Remember those days, Suzanne? Yeah, we may have been at the same youth rally one time. I only went to a few of them in my life. That was in, when churches from an area would drive to a particular church and all the teenagers would get together and they would have some, and there would be points and all that. They all went to the same youth rallies. They all prayed at the altar, the same altar, to the same God. They all got spanked with the same paddle the same belt. They all had all of those things together. The oldest would go through tough times but would come back to God before he left home. Would become a pillar and a deacon in a church on the edge of the Mississippi and the Minnesota side and would serve there for 30 years. The second would marry a pastor. Pastor who for about eight or nine years was on staff at Rockford First Assembly. That was when Rockford went from small to large. The third would marry a wonderful woman and they would pastor smaller churches throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin and give birth to two daughters and one lovely, beautiful, young-looking son. I'm not saying who they are. The third at 18 walked away from God. By 25, she was still away from God. By 30, she had 10 nieces and nephews and was still away from God. By 40, she had not yet come back to God. But by the time she hit 40, her nieces and nephews were old enough to know what, who God was and know how to pray. And one of us, I don't remember which one, nobody has yet taken credit for it, 
got all ten of us together and said, we are going to pray for our aunt and our uncle to come to Jesus. Throughout the entire time, I never once heard or saw my grandma tell my, my aunt what she was supposed to do with God. She was trusting even in uncertain times. Pray, oh yeah. And I'd never cross grandma up, she might pray for you. Tell you what to do. Yeah, Grandma was known to have an opinion or two. She was a Coates. And give that opinion. We give opinions out like clowns give out candy. But in this case, she prayed and that was all she did. I was there attending the same church that they attended when, aunt, when my aunt came to know the Lord again. Remember because one week my grandma stood up during testimony time. That was in oh, Sunday evening services church services years ago they'd have a time in which people would stand and share wonderful things that God had done and my grandma never did that and this night she stood and she shared and said my, our daughter has come back to the Lord after over 20 years the following week she stood and she said and our son-in-law came to the Lord this past week two weeks later she stood and said our son-in-law was driving in Los Angeles traffic and started to speak in tongues following week after that she stood and she said our daughter was asleep woke up speaking in tongues in the middle of uncertainty, she had had to dedicate her situation to the Lord. I was preaching in Russia and a woman came up to me at the end of the service and asked, I said, I've been praying for my husband for seven years and I want him to come to the Lord. What can I do? And I said, keep praying. As though I had, you know, I'm from America. Clearly, I must have the magical solution, right? Had no idea that I said, keep praying. Then pointed to a woman who'd come with us and said, that woman prayed for 15 years before her husband came to the Lord, but he serves the Lord today. If your kids are not currently living the way that you want them to be living for God, you must dedicate your basic uncertainties to God and pray for them. Isn't there something more that I can do? Not much. You want there to be more, but there isn't much more than that. After all, what more do you need? Those who say, well, at least we can pray. No, that's the most you can do. Everything after that is lesser than praying. Everything after that takes a back seat to turning it over to the king of the universe. We want there to be something more as though we could do a better job than God. <laughs> Look at somebody next to you and say, you know, that's kind of foolish when I think about it. Some of you are not participating with these. <laughs> the price that must be paid for commitment is comfort. The price that must be paid is you going on your knees before God and telling God, God, here's our situation. Will you intervene and in allowing God the space to do that? You must dedicate your deepest possessions to the Lord. Acts chapter 7, verse number 20, in the middle of his sermon, Stephen talks about Moses and Moses' parents and says that they dedicated their child to the Lord because they believed that God had something for him. Your children have been entrusted to you. And they, God has asked you to raise them, but God has never asked you. I'll try to be careful here with what I say and how I say this, but God did not ask you to turn your children into idols. You should, talk, you should talk to some teachers about the schedule some of their kids keep. Just talk to my wife about the schedule some of her kids in her class, first grade, keep outside of school. 
lessons that they go to, their parents do nothing. Some, and some parents of the kids in her class do nothing but cart their kids from this lesson to that lesson. Their entire day after school is spent for their kids. I'm just not convinced that's what God wanted. I'm not convinced God wanted you to turn your most precious possession, your children, into an idol. I think, I think God wanted you to spend a lot of quality time with them, but you know, it's not really quality time if they're in the soccer field and you're off chit-chatting about gossip with the rest of the mothers anyway. Am I against soccer? No, not really. Practices? No, I did piano lessons for more than my fair share of time. I've done all sorts of things like that. My parents had me in beginner swim lessons four years. I passed the last year that, but this is the honest truth. I passed the last year because the swim instructor was tired of seeing me. I went home and told my parents I passed, and then I begged not to send me to the next level. I knew that would be like a death sentence. How did I get there? I rode my bike. I, you know, I live in Glendale, it's a suburb of Milwaukee. I'm not going to let my kids ride their bike to swim lessons. That's not the best idea. I'm aware of all of that. God did not intend. He intended for you to dedicate your most precious possessions to Him. And then to, as a good steward, to raise them, but not make them the center of your universe. That is the stuff that empty nest divorces are made of. He wants us to pray. Dedicate them and then to pray for them. The price tag is that you give up your own desires. It's easy to make our own desires seem like God's desires and it's hard to make God's desires our own desires. It's necessary that you do that. You dedicate yourself and your deepest possessions unto the Lord. Realizing that there's a certain point in time in which you tell your kids what they're, going, what they're doing. When they're young, you're telling them this is what you're doing, this is how you do it. When they get a little bit older, you tell them this is what you're going to do. When they get a little bit older, and you all know the age I'm talking about, you tell them, no, this is what you have to do. When they get a little bit beyond that, though, you have to shift from this is from what from you have to to here's what I want you to do. And then let them make their own decisions. And then the next stage after that is the solicited advice stage. They ask you give advice. Boy, that one's hard talked to a mother this past week. She is celebrating her first Mother's Day today. She is so excited to be a mom. She told me that she has never prayed so much in her life dedicating her newborn daughter to the Lord. That is the dedication of your deepest and dearest possessions to the Lord. When I was in college, I lived uh, kind of close to one of my grandparents, uh, to my grandma Turner on my mom's side. And Grandma Turner, and all her pluses and minuses, Grandma Turner knew how to pray. One day, I was having car trouble, and my car was parked out in front of her house, and um, my wife's brother-in-law had come to help, and he's the one who knows something about cars. I knew nothing. I stood there and handed him a wrench when he said, hand me that wrench, you know, that funny one that says this on it. I handed him the wrench and looked like I knew what I was doing. He was under the car, and there was a point in time in which we had no idea how to fix what our issue was, and... Cheryl came out to ask, how's it going? She was young in those days and new wife and 
That's not the best. You, you understand now that's probably not the best question to ask, I'm sure. When I'm working on a vehicle, don't come and ask, how's it going? It's going wonderful, as you see me throw the wrench. How long, does it t how long is that going to take? You know the answer to that when it comes to vehicles? The answer is twice as long as he tells you it's going to take. He says, oh, we'll be at this for about two hours. That's four. So there we were, and Cheryl came out and asked how it was going, and we told her it wasn't going very well. And she said, all right, well, uh, Grandma wanted to know, so I'll go back in and tell her. And she went back in and came back outside and said, well, Grandma's praying. I am not making this up. When Cheryl said, Grandma is praying, the problem was fixed like that, wasn't it? Grandma was on the job. And when Grandma was on the job and in prayer, things were going to happen. Heaven was going to stand still and listen. Because of all the things she had learned in life, she had learned how to pray how to dedicate her deepest and dearest possessions to Jesus through prayer. Price tag of commitment for Moses' mother was that she would dedicate her deepest possessions to Jesus and the fourth price tag was that she would devote her fullest love to the Lord. I never had to wonder about my place with my own mother. I always knew that Jesus was first in her life. I could see it by the way she lived. I always knew that Dad was second. I could see it by the way they hugged each other every night in the kitchen when they were supposed to be cooking. And I always knew that I was third, fourth, somewhere down there on the list. I wasn't ever below that. And I never had to doubt it. I never believed that I was first. I always knew that place belonged to Jesus. And I never knew, thought that I was second. I always knew that place belonged to my dad. And I never had to doubt, however, that I was very high on her list of people who she loved. Gentlemen, my dad used to say, he's the real Pastor Coates. The real Pastor Coates used to say every year on Mother's Day that your kids need to hear you tell your wife, I love you. It's the best thing that you can do for them. I think I've come to agree with him. I didn't, but then again, I was a teenager. He then would go on to say that you need to tell your wife ten times every day that you love them. That's quite a bit. So some men, being the wise men that they were, they'd go home and sit down at the lunch table and while they were taking a bite of roast beef, they'd look up and say, I love you, 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 I love you. There, I said it ten times. That's not the best way. You figure that out, huh? You, you've learned this by watching, have you? That's not the best way, but that is important. To simply say, I told you I loved you when we got married. If it changes, I'll let you know. That's not a good plan. <laughs> That's not a good plan. You can do better than that. I'm sure of it. Telling her how you feel at least once a year is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And gentlemen and ladies, boys and girls... Devoting your fullest love to Jesus at the price tag of your heart is what He expects from you. 
You know, I'm pretty convinced that every godly mother has a wish list for Mother's Day. And that is first on the list, that my kids would grow up to live for Jesus. All the other things that may happen to them, as long as they would live for Jesus, I would be okay with that. If you are not, realize that no matter what you give your mother today, it's not the first thing on a godly mother's list. You could buy her a yacht and put it in Lake Michigan for her. It's not the first thing on her list. Buy her a wonderful car. Bring her flowers. Bring her a card. Scribble on it with crayon if you want. What she really wants is to know that you love Jesus. That's first on her list. The price tag of commitment is your heart given back to the Lord. Given to her? Yeah, that's nice too. Given to the Lord first, however. That's what she really wants. That's the price tag of commitment. Where is your heart at with God? That's what God wants to know. It's the first question He's going to ask of you when you get to heaven. Where was your heart? Was your heart stayed on me? Or was your heart wandering to every other place? Honestly, if some of us treated... Some of us... uh, treat our relationship with Jesus unlike we would treat our relationship with anyone else. Some of us wander so much, we're worse than junior high kids jumping from relationship to relationship. Did you ever keep track of those, Pastor Paul, when you were a teacher in seventh grade? Do you know how mind-numbing that can be? Because in first hour, they're going out, and by third hour, they broke up. (laughs) And by sixth hour, they're back together again. You need a chalkboard with an eraser just to keep track of all of it. Some of us treat our relationship with God that way. You know, we don't put up with it with other people, yet we ask the Lord to put up with it. And He is not amused. When you pledge yourself to Him, He wants that pledge to mean something, that you're going to walk with Him all the days of your life. That same grandma who prayed for my aunt said over and over again at the evening meal in her house, when I die, I want the preacher to preach about salvation. I want him to tell the entire congregation to get right with God. When Grandma passed away and my dad called me to tell me that, he said, and the family has voted unanimously, we want you to preach the funeral. I knew that there was only but one thing I could do. Grandma was going to sit right up in the casket if I didn't do what she wanted. (laughs) All the family was sitting over on this side. I only looked in their direction once or twice. Because when Grandma passed away, all of her kids and from what we know, all of of her grandkids and great-grandkids were living for Jesus. That, my friends, is a legacy worth being proud of. Now, I am well aware that by raising that as a possibility that some of you will not like that quite so much because it is not yet true in your own life. That should not stop me from championing that because that's what we really want, isn't it? When I pass away, I'd love to have one of my grandkids preach my funeral. And that means several things. First of all, that means I live to be old because I have grandkids old enough to preach. The second thing is that that means that they have grown up to love Jesus. What more could you ask for? There you go, Rachel. Write that one down and remember that, okay? When Dad dies, we're supposed to, okay? Remember that one. 
And it's okay if they preach salvation too. Because what else is there? And on this Mother's Day, I could have championed mothers, but I would rather champion Jesus because that's what all godly mothers really want. Is that you would grow up and say to Jesus, I will surrender and commit my heart. So I'd ask you, where is your heart and how's it doing? I make, make no judgments. I pass no pretenses on that whatsoever. I just think it's a good question for us to consider for the next two or three minutes. I think we ought to consider where our heart is and ask ourselves, am I really walking with God like I say I am? Close your eyes with me, please, as we consider that question. Price tag of commitment in your heart is your love for Jesus, first and foremost. It is a surrender of your fears. It's a surrender of your uncertainties to Him. How about it, my friend? Where is your heart with Jesus? Jesus.